All right, y'all. It's about time to further bask in the bounty of them beautiful beatitudes. All right, yeah, that's really all I got. So now that I'm kind of on a roll and I'm rambling a little bit, starting these things is actually just a little bit terrifying because I want to make sure that they're perfect. You know, you have all these podcasts like, what's the best intro? Or you listen to a sermon and they got a good hook. Oh, wouldn't my English teacher be proud of me? Yeah, some of that's just kind of paralyzing. So now that I'm going, all right, yes, back to the Beatitudes. It's interesting how long this is actually taking. I wasn't anticipating this, but find it really, really helpful. So we're up to Beatitude number three. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All right, so quick recap. Yes, yet again, we're looking at the Beatitudes, this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is setting forth categories of people that are called blessed, or you could argue happy, or who are living a good life. Well, actually, no. It's not so much that they're living a good life by external standards, it's that they are living life well. And that is one of the primary focus shifts that Jesus is trying to get his audience to see so that he can show them through the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, what genuine repentance unto God looks like. Okay, so this category of people, the meek, who are they and why does this category get blessed with the specific blessing of inheriting the earth? All right, so as always, let's go to words. The Greek word praus can be defined as mildness of disposition or gentleness of spirit. All right, it's a fantastic definition. We basically understand what that means, but we could actually tease that out a little bit more because whereas it's helpful in wrapping ourselves around a general concept, what does that actually look like in a tangible way in a situational context? So in other words, I guess, why is this concept of gentleness of spirits or mildness of disposition translated into the one single word of meek? Well, what does meek mean? So Merriam-Webster's quickly becoming my favorite English dictionary far more than dictionary.com, even though dictionary.com is a word of the day thing, which is really awesome. So according to Merriam-Webster, meek is, to be meek is to endure injury with patience and without resentment. Ah, there is what um, a practically manifested gentleness of spirit actually looks like. So flip it around, the meek, by enduring injury with patience and without resentment, are specifically those who love. So this takes us to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist upon its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. All of these are meek. And so interestingly enough, I think that this beatitude is the first indication that Jesus like starts really directly pointing his, re his, his readers, his listeners, his audience to the true identity of God. Because God is love. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, we see what love actually is, which means we therefore see the mildness of disposition and the gentleness of spirits of God himself. That very meekness, which Christ himself had, especially when he says, you know, I am gentle and lowly. 
So it's the very character of God that Jesus had, but it's also, therefore, the very character of God that we, as his image bearers, can show forth when we love others. Because he first loved us, and he is love. So, okay, without going down the white rabbit hole, the third beatitude, I'm going to try and argue, shows us that those who inherit the earth are those who are the true image bearers of God, who actually reflect how he is, especially in situations of offense and affront. And the best way to do this, actually, is to look at Moses. Because Moses is actually called, to paraphrase, you know, the meekest man that there ever was. So we're going to use Moses to try and show that those who inherit the earth are the meek, and that the meek are those who truly reflect the character of God. But wait, Moses didn't inherit. He was actually quite forbidden from entering the promised inheritance of Israel. So what gives? Well, it's actually because, I'm going to try and argue, that Moses had a very uncharacteristic and ostentatious moment of whatever you want to call the direct opposite of meekness. And it's because of that that he was forbidden from entering the promised land. Now, I know some of you who know um, Numbers 20 and this story are probably already bristling. I would, because I know exactly what the scripture says, but give me a minute. Hold on to your pants. We're going to do this. Hold on to your pants? What? Anyway. All right. So let's look at Moses. So if meekness is this idea of enduring injury with patience and without resentment, then there are two specific instances in which Moses actually does exactly this. The first one is in Numbers Numbers 12, when his own siblings, his right and his left, huh, sons of Zebedee, interesting, when his own right and left hand, man and woman, come to him and basically call him out, they attack his position, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that they attack his character when they say, um, Numbers 12, all right, when um, Aaron and Miriam come to him and say, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So they're basically attacking Moses' position as leader, trying to place themselves on par with it, trying to defend themselves. We could also argue, I think, that they're attacking Moses' character, almost saying that he's hoarding or hogging this position of leadership through some kind of self-righteousness or boastful arrogance. Again, some of you may think that's a bit of a stretch, but I think it's also reasonable given what we know about human nature. And what does Moses do when he's confronted, basically attacked, by his own right and left hand people, his co-leaders? Well, he falls on his face before God. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't defend. And actually, when God starts to pass judgment on Aaron and Miriam, particularly Miriam, Moses rises to their defense. Interesting. And it's in this context that in Numbers 12, verse 3, it says that now Mo the man Moses was very meek, 
more than all people who are on the face of the earth. So we see that played out. Well, another instance, jump forward four chapters to Numbers 16. Moses' position and authority and arguably character are attacked yet again by the sons of Korah, who say, You have gone too far, the you being Moses, for, in all the con- for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Ooh, so exalting yourself, Moses, you're actually a f- being an affront to God by assaulting yourself over his congregation. Ooh. But how does Moses respond? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't lash out. You could argue that he is patient. He's gentle. He is kind. And he goes before God. And God, the rightful judge, is the one who passes you know, judgment from his authority. All right, so jump forward then to Numbers 20 which is when Moses brings water out of the rock. And this is an instance in which I would argue that Moses uncharacteristically displays a severe lack of meekness, and it's this lack of meekness that actually is the cause for him not inheriting a possession in the promised land. Okay, so if we go to Numbers 20, the people are angry and they're thirsty, and they say, would that we had perished when our, with our, when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you, Moses, brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's no water to drink. Okay. Then Moses and Aaron did go from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they did fall on their faces. Okay, here's where God tells Moses what to do. All right, so so far, so good. God says to Moses, take the staff. Now, some might argue that this is either the staff that Moses held up over the Red Sea, which I believe is exactly the staff that's referenced in Exodus 17 that talks about this episode, or the impression here is that it's actually the staff of Aaron that budded, which is in the in the tent of meeting before the tabernacle. Either way. Um, so God says, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Okay. Sounds clear enough. Take the staff, which itself is supposed to represent my power. And simply hold it. Put the presence of my power before the eyes of the congregation. All you had to do was hold up the staff at the Red Sea and the waters split. All you had to do was set Aaron's staff amongst the others. Step back and I made it bud. Whichever staff you think this is, they're simply both, well not simply, they're both a representation of the sovereign mighty power of God. And that's all Moses is commanded to do. Take the staff, place it before the people, and talk to the rock. Tell it to bring forth water, and it will. 
All right. So then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice. And water came gushing out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Uh-oh. Now, here's where my interpretation is going to diverge from what most people would argue. And it hinges on what we translate God as saying in Numbers 20, verse 12. Many would argue that Moses was denied entrance to the promised land because of a lack of faith. But that strikes me as odd because up to this point, okay, yes, you had the burning bush way back in Africa before the Exodus in which Moses was like, uh, really? You sure? Me? God? Uh, I ain't no leader, buddy. And God's like, no, you're going to do it. But since then, Moses hasn't been faithless. Unless I'm missing something, which is entirely possible, I haven't seen an instance in which Moses has lacked faith in God to bring about what he says he's going to bring about. So why now? And the argument hinges, essentially, that because Moses struck the rock twice, instead of striking it once, he didn't fully believe that God was going to do it, so he like hit it again to make sure, really, really, God, you're there? And then the way we translate verse 20, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me. Okay, this seems to line up. But that also, I don't think, gels with the next statement. Because you didn't believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Hmm. So, I went and I blue letter Bible. That's what I always do. I love their lexicon version. So... The Hebrew word Ahman, which is what is being translated as to believe, its primary definition, at least according to this lexicon, is to support, to confirm, or to be faithful. Hmm. So what if we actually read this episode, and I did a dramatic reading on purpose, What if we see that God is actually telling Moses, you weren't faithful to what I told you to do. I didn't tell you to strike the rock. I told you to simply hold the staff, which represents my sovereign power, and speak to the rock. And let me bring forth the water, but also, if necessary, let me bring forth the judgment. But no. You got up in front of the congregation and you automatically started laying into them. Here now, you rebels. Hold up, buddy. Check yourself. But Moses doesn't. He goes a step further. Shall we? Oh, who's this we? Kimosabi. Are you on par with God? Seems like Moses, he's at a breaking point And in a moment of rageful arrogance... Stands up as the leader. Not the leader that God has placed there for God's purposes, but as a leader in and of himself who feels his own position attacked and enraged chastises the people of Israel. And then caught up 
in his impassioned anger, takes the staff, which he was only supposed to hold, and smacks the rock with it. You can almost see to prove a point to scare the people of Israel. It's like, oh, he mad. Oh, we don't want to make him mad. Oh, he mad. Oh, and there's water. Oh, crap. We, he mad and there's water. We, okay, yes, Moses. We're sorry, Moses. And you can almost see Moses there like, it's right. Right, you're sorry. Challenge me again. Mom. But God says, because you were not faithful to what I commanded you. And what did I command you? To get out of my way. Your actions completely prevent the people of Israel from seeing me as holy. Completely unique and set apart in my power, my ability, my love, and my judgment. No, you got in the way. You got all butthurt and you got in the way. You lost meekness. You did not display the character of God. You were not patient. You were not gentle. You were not kind. You were arrogant. And that is why you are not being allowed an inheritance in the land. So essentially what I'm arguing is that only those who accurately display the character of God, who are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Okay, hold on. What about Jesus flipping over the money tables? Not the same, not quite the same thing. There is still meekness there. Because if you put that within the context of Jesus' entire ministry, that was a specific action that was very conscious Consciously and very soberly taken. And you could argue also extremely proportionate. Jesus didn't go ape in the middle of the temple and start flying around. People didn't think that he lost his mind. This is a very controlled anger. Vehement, to be sure. Impactful? Yes. Intense? Absolutely. But not impassioned, not arrogant. And so there's a fundamental difference. Okay, so let's take this back to Jesus' audience. How does anyone respond when they are personally or perceive themselves to be personally attacked? We want to defend ourselves. We are not loving. And that brings it back to 1 Corinthians 13. One of the things I love about that chapter is that it shows that the beloved is actually, by definition, unlovable. I only need to be patient when someone is frustrating me. I only need to be gentle when there's a temptation to be harsh. I only need to be commanded to not be arrogant or rude when I really want to do both. And what's the context in which those occur, in which that's required? When I'm affronted, when I'm offended. So love, therefore can be summed up in meekness. And it is only those people, the chosen of God, the children of God, the image bearers of God, who reflect his actual character, who are going to inherit the earth. So stop worrying about them Romans that are offending you. Yeah, they're tools and they'll get their comeuppance. Just watch history play out. But can you endure with meekness and love even the affront of the Romans 
who are trampling all over a land that's supposed to be your inheritance. Kenny? Alright, so I guess that long pause is that I don't really have much else to say. Other than, I guess, yeah, to reiterate, I hope that's actually practical. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, who are those who live life well? It's the meek. It's the loving. It's those who can soberly, dispassionately endure a front and a fence with patience and a gentleness of spirit and a sobriety of mind that absolutely keeps the prowling lion of the devil at bay, does not give him a foothold, and does not allow the anger of man to prove that it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Because Moses absolutely proved that. He got angry to high heaven. And he did not produce the righteousness of God. Instead, he fell into sin. So, I hope that's clear. I actually do hope that that's helpful and practical and indicative of the kind of mindset and perspective that is required if one is going to live a life of genuine repentance, which is nothing but service unto the living God. All right, until next time, in beatitude number four, deuces.